everyone, this is Caleb, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. Today, actually, I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner, and today, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Russell Moore to talk with him about his brand new book, Losing Our Religion, an Altar Call for Evangelical America. And, you know, Russell... uh, Dr. Moore is is somebody that I followed for a really long time. And so when the opportunity came up to have him on the podcast and talk with him, I was very excited for that possibility to become a reality because he's he's one of the people that I like to to learn from and kind of see what he has to say on certain things and pay attention and and learn from some of the things that he's currently thinking about as well. And if you want to keep up with me and some of the things that I am learning about, please subscribe to my Substack to where I give three things each week that I am currently thinking about and learning about as well. And it could be, I mean, literally it could be anything from a quote to a movie, to a TV show, to a book, to a podcast, to um, a video game, to a fiction, uh, to fiction and nonfiction and, or a biography, literally the the possibilities i don't know if the possibilities are endless but they they they're definitely vast the only requirement is things that i'm thinking about and things that are engaging my curiosity and my imagination so if you're wanting to continue this journey of lifelong learning please subscribe to my Substack, and you can just find the note or find the link in the show notes now as i mentioned today i'm talking with uh Russell Moore about his book, Losing Our Religion, and we get into kind of what what he has uh, been uh, going through over the past several years. We talk about how to have, uh, like, this seems to be, um, you know, I guess we're kind of beginning a little bit of, uh, I don't know if it's a series, but there's definitely some uh, episodes coming out throughout the next several that is going to deal with this theme of how to have conversations with people that you disagree with and so i'm uh, very excited to be bringing that to you so let me tell you a little bit about dr moore and then we will jump into the conversation so russell moore is an evangelical theologian christian theologian and minister and he is currently the editor-in-chief of christianity today and previously served as president of the southern baptist conventions ethics and religious Liberty Commission. And he has authored uh, several books, the most recent being Losing Our Religion. And without any further wait, here is my conversation with Dr. Russell Moore. Well, Dr. Moore, it is good to have you on uh, the Learner's Corner podcast today. Well, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, you know, one of the places that I love to begin a lot of conversations is I love hearing the origin story behind works of art. In this case, you've written this book, Losing Our Religion. And I would just love to kind of hear uh, just the origin story for you writing this book. Well, I think the origin story probably is when I was about 15 years old and went through a spiritual crisis that really um, threw me, but also I think kind of shaped the rest of my life because I started uh, wondering, is Christianity really just politics or, or 
something else, uh, culture or something. And I worked through that as a 15 year old, but I noticed the exact same uh, fear except magnified in people all over the place. So I, I ended up over the past few years having the same conversation with people over and over and over again and noticed that they were very different from the kinds of conversations I would have had at the beginning of my ministry, where people might have said, well, I, I think I'm I'm leaving the faith because I don't believe in miracles or or what have you, or I'm leaving the faith because I think the mor the moral restrictions are too strict. Now I was hearing something very different, and it was it was much more like what I had gone through as a 15 year old, which is is Christianity just a means to an end? Mm -hmm. So it was uh, really uh, addressing addressing that. Yeah, I, I'd be curious to hear. What what were some of the things that maybe you learned as a 15-year-old that helped you maybe even, I don't know if prepare you is the right word, but what, like, talk to me a little bit about that. Well, well it really did prepare me. I mean, there, there are some people who will often say, um, how over the past uh, few years, past uh, decade, a little less than a decade, with some of the things that I've seen, they'll say, how did you not, were you ever at the point of losing your faith? And I'll often say no, but it's because I kind of had already worked through it. It was, um, you know, they say in parenting that what an adolescent needs is a manage is a series of manageable crises uh, with someone there to work them them through it. But they have a small scale uh, crisis that teaches them how to deal with bigger uh, crises later on. And I I think that's what what was there. I mean, I, I needed um, to work through this quietly. I, I, there's almost no one who would have known. Um, as a matter of fact, there only one human being in the world that would have known that I was going through any kind of a, a spiritual crisis. Uh, but behind closed doors, I was working through that. And it was the writing of uh, C.S. Lewis that that ultimately uh, helped me come out of that by not by uh, happy talk. I mean, I, I think if if the message that I had received was, oh, don't pay any attention to that, just pay attention to the good things, I would have seen through that as PR um, or or uh, spin control, and I would have walked away. Uh, he didn't do that. What Lewis was doing was pointing beyond all that uh, to Jesus Christ and to the bigger uh, picture of the kingdom of God that addressed the imagination, the intellect, and the conscience all at the same time. And that's that's really the main thing I learned. Mm. Yeah. Was there a specific work from Lewis or a specific quote that really helped you during that time? And there well, might be several. Well, it, yes, but it it was the fact that I had read Chronicles of Narnia over and over and over again as a child that I recognized the name C.S. Lewis when I saw it on the spine of Mere Christianity. And when I tell people Mere Christianity helped me through this, it was not because it was it was not the arguments that Lewis was making. Uh, although I, I think those are, are valid uh, arguments and I agree with them, but my, that wasn't my problem. My problem wasn't cognitive at that point. Um, my problem was instead, is this just a means to an end? And he had 
so I, I will sometimes tell people it's not so much what Lewis had to say as to how he was saying it. There's a kind of tone of voice that comes through his writings that really is clearly not trying to market or mobilize, just bearing witness. And that's that's what I needed. Yeah, there's such power in finding like a kindred spirit, like a, even if it's somebody different or not something, not somebody different, or it can be somebody different, but somebody who's distant and you don't even know. Yeah. yeah. Well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'd love to hear um, between your experience as a 15 year old and what you write about in, you know, losing our religion and what you've just recently, you know, this, um, this, uh, I don't know, maybe faith evolution. I don't know. I don't know. You can, you can pick and choose however word that you want to use. Um, talk to me about what was different between going through it as a 15 year old and going through it more recently. Well, I didn't go through the same thing uh, as a 15 year old. And it was because I think I had gone through it uh, as a 15 year old. So I, mm. I've never, um, I never came to the point over the past several years when I started questioning um the truthfulness of Christianity, the existence of God, the authority of Scripture, any of those things, because all of those things that I had already uh, worked through. Mm -hmm. um, and even uh, and even cognitively, I, know, I think there are a lot of things we know cognitively that we don't know uh, at the deepest part of ourselves and vice versa. But I, I cognitively knew that the way that God usually works, both in my life and in people I know, uh, have known, is in the seemingly dark, hidden crisis times. And so I always knew, even though I couldn't perceive it, that God was at, at work here. So it wasn't at all the same uh, kind of uh, situation. It was that I could recognize the same kind of situation in a lot of other people, and I started to wonder what would have happened if, if I had uh, encountered all of this later in my life, and wasn't prepared for it. What would what would have happened to me? So I think I think that was more what was going on. What else helped you, like just navigating this time in your life? Well, uh, at at the time, I mean, what I was dealing with was a um, severe politicization of evangelical Christianity, but not the kind of politicization that I had expected, um, because we had always had a political wing of uh, contemporary evangelical Christianity, but there was a tossing aside of a lot of the previously given justifications for that. Uh, so there was that, a growing authoritarianism, a white backlash to even the most minimal uh, statements about racial justice, and there was a sexual abuse uh, crisis uh, mm -hmm. going on. And uh, I think what helped me through all of that um, would be both kind of spending time with dead people who had been through similar things like uh, Lewis, I mentioned, and uh, some other, several others, uh, but also with living people. There were some people in my life um, who were here and were always here. And uh, so that's uh, 
uh, I mean, two of them are are uh, on the the back of uh, the back of the book, uh, Beth Moore and Andrew Peterson, and there were many others as well, where there was. Um, I mean, I think what I needed was not so much counsel. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I needed was laughter and you're not crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was at the time what I, what I did in, in there, I needed counsel too, but those were the most important things. Mm. Yeah. That, that's great. You know, one of, one of the things that, and you, you touched on it a little bit, but one of the things uh, that you introduced me to are like some language that I found helpful is you talk about the depravity uh, gospel, which is mm-hmm. what you were uh, alluding to a little bit. Can you uh, talk and kind of unpack a little bit about what that is? Yeah, it's it's you know we we think about the prosperity gospel that uh, has this uh, very predatory form of optimism. If you have enough faith, then you're going to thrive physically. You're going to thrive um, medically. You're going to thrive financially. All of those things. Uh, but what I've been noticing in the past several years is sort of the the mirror image of that, of a, a kind of predatory pessimism, and and that's a loss of expectations. So this is one of the things that I I kept encountering when we were seeing some of the darkest realities possible, both in our our life together as a country and in our life together as a church. I was expecting to have people who would say, no, that's not the way that it is. But instead, I was usually having people say, come on, get real. And especially behind closed doors, which is mm-hmm. this is this is the way we have to be. And I think that's a general sort of problem in the churches. We have such a low expectation of um, character, maturity, uh, humanity, that we expect a very dark view of everyone, and we also expect a very dark view of ourselves in order to combat that. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's why I had a friend who said to me um, at one point, he said, I think what's gone wrong in Western culture is that we, we had these uh, decades and decades of self-esteem teaching and and you're all right you're a good person and i said i don't think that's what it is at all uh i don't think it is this sense of i'm as i'm as good as you are and uh, i'm not a bad person i think it's instead sort of the the uh television talk show sort of reaction you can't judge me mm-hmm. because we're all just like this, and and that's what the world is like. Now that's a that's a viewpoint that a person can come to. It's a very social Darwinian viewpoint. It's just not a Christian viewpoint at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it even makes me think it's so soaked in. I mean, you were you know talking about the um, the prosperity gospel and that being like very positive nature, and the opposite is just it's cynicism and it's pessimism. Yeah, yeah. it's it's cynicism, and that's why you know often. When I'm warning about uh, cynicism, I think there are at least two ways to become cynical, and only one of them is obvious to us. I mean, the, the one way to become cynical is to say, 
well, I'm so disappointed. Uh, there, there's been an institution that has uh, harmed me or disappointed me, and often, uh, often that is completely true. So therefore, all institutions are suspect, and, and there's a, a sense of withdrawal. But there's another kind of cynicism that I see even more often, which says, well, this is the way the game is played, so I need to play it. And that's that's cynicism of an even darker kind. What helps you like navigate like the polar opposites of that between cynicism and pessimism and then just being, you know, almost like disillusioned in uh, mm -hmm. in positive nature? Well, I, I think that, you know, we talked about that predatory optimism and pessimism. I think it's always that way if you don't have the the vision of reality that is supplied by the christian gospel which is not optimistic or pessimistic mm -hmm. uh instead it is every human being is created in the image of god uh, the universe is a signpost to something that is glorious the longings that we have and that all of us have are pointing toward that but also that we're all sinners uh, that 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 none of us can rely on ourselves, uh, that we all need forgiveness before God. You have both of those two things existing at the same time. And if you don't keep those two things together, you're going to end up with a really, really skewed view mm -hmm. of, of either uh, the universe is all uh, just a, a happy, stroll through uh, the woods, in which case you really are crushed when you see uh, the reality of, of life, or this sense that the universe is red in, in blood and claw. And so that means that that's the way that reality is, and I must adapt to it, in which case you become uh, the monster you're trying to oppose. So you have to have, you have to have a a, a biblical view, a Christian view. And I think what that means is often what we're having to do is to say, where am I most inclined? Where am I most vulnerable to falling in either of those two directions? And sometimes for people, that's a matter of temperament. That um, They're always kind of, I, I had a professor in college, I still think about it all the time, who talked about a a young woman that she had in her class who was quoting her father as saying, it's a doggy dog world. And what she meant by that was, you know, just think about how happy dogs are to see it's a doggy dog world. And the professor had to say, well, you know, the saying actually is it's a dog eat dog world. And she admit, Temperamentally, that didn't make sense to her. Yeah. Doggy dog world did. Sometimes you got temperamental and then sometimes it's time of, time of life and situation hmm. where you have to guard uh, your your heart and your psyche against that mm -hmm. are you more tempted to fall into the positive nature or the cynicism nature i think i'm that's hard to say because mm -hmm. um i am tempted toward a kind of melancholy but it's a melancholy that's rooted in the positive. So, I mean, I will I will tell people, uh, sometimes people will say, uh, we'll talk about struggles with 
bitterness and and so forth and vengefulness and i really don't have uh that struggle uh very much but it's not because of you know sanctification it's just temperament it's because what i tend to do is to instead kind of read things nostalgically back into uh what has happened and i kind of tend to edit out uh the the darker aspects of it so there's a i think my bigger danger is nostalgia mm -hmm. um and there are some people for whom the bigger danger is uh is a sort of um enthusiasm for the future so everything's going to be better once i mm -hmm. you know get this job or find my soulmate or whatever it is um they have that temptation i i'm more inclined to sin uh with nostalgia and a, and a backward look than yeah that. well and i was gonna say and you write about that in your book too mm -hmm. how we're tempted to go into nostalgia can you talk to me um just about like the the positive negatives of nostalgia and like falling into that well, I think there is something uh, there's something really good about nostalgia in the sense that um, nostalgia is rooted in longing, and and I think that longing is is one of the clearest uh, signposts to God. Um, and it also there's a poet David White who was really important to me at a dark point in my life who writes about nostalgia, that nostalgia often is a sign that something is coming to an end. Uh, and, and there's a sense in which you, you realize that and you know that. That's good. And I think nostalgia also often is rooted in a sense of gratitude um, in a way that we kind of accurately, uh, in some cases, nostalgia is more accurate than our perception uh, was in the present because we know how things turned out. You know, I, I can go back and look, I have a Bible here that belonged to me when I was 12, um, 13, 14, and I can look at it and see the highlights that I made. And I, I, I know immediately what they all were about. And almost all of them were about worries that I had and almost none of those worries, well, I, I, none of those worries uh, ended up being anything really to worry about. Well, you know that now. I mean, it's easy for me to look back and say, come on, you know, 14-year-old Russell Moore, this is not anything to waste your time worrying about. Uh, but you don't know that when you're going through it. So I think that's a positive aspect of nostalgia. I think what, where a nostalgia goes awry is that we start to see uh, God's activity, whether in our own lives or, um, or sort of in a broader sense, as being in the past and something to be uh, monumentalized. So there, there's uh, in the Transfiguration account, which I think is one of the uh, most important, actually, uh, accounts in the Gospels, uh, all Three of the Gospels explicitly talk about it, and one uh, implicitly uh, talks about it. Um, you have you have this moment of clarity where Jesus is seen in glory, and Simon Peter wants to build tabernacles. 
He wants to build something solid and something stable that one can point to and say here. And what the transfiguration is saying is, no, 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 no. It's not the tabernacle. It's the pillar of cloud that would rest upon uh, the tabernacle. And so don't don't try to solidify that. So I think there's a danger a lot of times when we start to see some sort of imaginary golden age uh, in the past, and we just have to get back to that because it's 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 comforting to say we're we're going back to where we used to be and we just lost track rather than what the Bible says we're actually doing, which is setting out uh, toward a, a city we haven't seen. I mean, that's disorienting and and scary, but that's what following Jesus is. Yeah. Yep. What helps you work against that own sense of nostalgia in yourself? Like the the negative aspect yeah. of nostalgia, I guess. Yeah. Um I I I don't know except to say that um I think a lot of the things that have a lot of things that I have learned are lessons I wasn't setting out to learn and didn't really realize I was learning at the time, but came through difficult uh, experiences. I think that's how most of us uh, learn things, mm -hmm. but also because I have people in my life who kind of know that that's what I'm prone to do and who mm -hmm. will, who will say something uh, about mm -hmm. it. And they know how to, they have the kind of relationship with me that they can say that and they know how to say it to me in a way that's actually going to reach me. So I have, uh, I have a few of those folks too. Yeah. You know, um, I, I want to go back to what we were talking about with the depravity gospel. Mm -hmm. And we probably all know somebody who, who believes in that. It's just like, you know what? Things are, things are so bad that we have to lower our expectations. How do you go about like talking to somebody about that or like having a discussion about it that doesn't turn into like an explosive argument? Well, a lot of that's going to depend on um, the sort of uh, relationship that I have with the person. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, one of the things you you notice about the way that Jesus interacts with people is that there's no there's no easily predictable pattern. Uh, there are times when Jesus uh, directly confronts something, other times when he kind of comes at something around the side way, uh, other times where he says, I'm not going to address this at all. I mean, there are all kinds of different ways because uh, the scripture says he knows what's, what's in uh, man, some, some translation, what's in humanity not just in terms of humanity as human nature, but in particular people. And so, and, and we're, we don't have the wisdom that Jesus has uh, to the degree that he has. So we can't, we're not always going to get that right. But I think with some people, what I want to do is to find the places where they actually don't uh, believe that. And they're always going to be those uh, places where they actually don't believe that they actually do have a sense of expectation and of um, uh, and of accountability and of 
grace. I mean, find those places and just say, what is that? I mean, is, is this really, um, because, but I think the, the main thing is not so much convincing somebody who's in that pattern to come out of it mm-hmm. as much as it is, uh, helping everybody else from being inadvertently drawn into it mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, one of the things nobody wants to be naive, uh, and everybody wants to belong. And so if you take, you take both of those things and say, if you don't have as dark of you, uh, as I do, and as low of expectations as I do, and if you want to belong, you have to do that. I mean, people can get drawn into that and they also can over time start to, um, because they don't have the models in front of them, they can start to uh, not believe that those things can happen at all. And in in those cases, I mean, you can see that with, um, there was a a study I saw not long ago. I can't even remember who had this uh, out. And the the way the the, uh, researcher was summarizing it was that there's a kind of um, Gen Z person who would say, you know, uh, at the end of the day, everybody messes everything up. And the only uh, institutions that don't seem to mess everything up is Google and the military. So why not just get it all over with and have a techno martial uh dictatorship you know um and so you have to sort of say to people don't don't fall into that because i think that can that can often happen i see that happen a lot in churches and the way that it happens is usually not directly there's almost a playbook where someone will say uh you know I really like Pastor John. I know a lot of people don't and that he's really controversial. And what that does is it doesn't come directly at Pastor John. It just causes somebody to say, well, I I like and trust Pastor John, but I know I'm one of the few who do. Mm-hmm. And then it actually becomes real. Yeah. <laughs> over over time and so you have to get at that second person um yeah. i think even more so than the first you know that makes me think of a quote that you have in your book and you say um that everything you say should be true but that doesn't mean you should say everything that is true and yeah. i, I kind of want to touch on that just a little bit more whether it be in the the instance that you said about it there's very there's many other instances that we could talk about but what helps you determine like okay I, I have to say something here. I have to be vocal about this versus like, you know what? I don't know if it's actually going to be like, I don't know if it's going to be helpful for me to say something right here. Mm-hmm. I don't know it's going to make a difference. Well, I, I don't always get that right. I mean, there, there are yeah. many times when I haven't. Um, but the the way I think that, the way that I aspire to do it, we'll put it this way, mm-hmm. is to is to understand something about human nature so that I kind of recognize certain patterns. And they're patterns that, I mean, ultimately from uh, the Bible, also just in terms of um, fiction. I mean, there uh, there are a lot of, when I was uh, teaching uh, seminary students, 
I would often say, uh, advise people, you need to read fiction because it's going to get you on the inside, uh, a picture from the inside of people who have very different uh, temperaments and experiences from from you. That's just different than abstract uh, thought. So understanding human nature and then trying to understand that person uh, as best I can in order to say, what's what's really going to uh, reach that person? Uh, for instance, I, I think all the time about uh, there was a, a person that I knew in my life whose life was a total and complete wreck in almost every scenario that you could possibly think of that was going on. And I was talking to this wise, older uh, Christian uh, and I said, uh, you know, what do I do? And he said, I'll bet that his checking account is a disaster. Help him get that into uh, into into some order. And I said, his bank account, I said, his bank account is the least of his problem. And his response was something that's really stayed with me because he said, yes, it's the least of his problems. And the problems you're trying to address right now are too big. And so he can't get a handle on them. And when you come in and talk about those things that are that big, it's just going – it causes him to throw up his, his hands. Instead, show him how to do something in which he actually can bring – some order to his life and work outward from there. Now that wouldn't work with everybody, uh, but there are many cases where it does. So there, there are times when I would say, um, it, there, there are certain things where I would say, this is not something that I should speak to at all. You know, I've had people in congregations I've served. Um, I can think of a man who was uh, doggedly King James version only. Um, I'm not. Most of the congregation was not. Uh, I wasn't ever going to bring that up because he wasn't trying to impose on anybody else's conscience. Uh, he he held a belief, and and I I was able to say, you know, that is not. Uh, if I have to choose the problems this guy's going to have, I'll take it. I can I can live with that. Um, and we're able to go forward. I would have had a different reaction if you had had someone coming in and, and attacking other people for their new age Bible translations or something else. So there are times when you say something, times when you kind of bear with something. And then there are times when you say, um, how do I patiently address this step by step? Now that's, that is a really dangerous place to be too, because what you can say to yourself is, um, okay, I now is not the time to deal with this. I'll have to deal with it later. And that really often is coming from a place of fear. Because you're saying there's too much at stake right now. Let me wait until all of this is over. Well, there, there's just never a time when there's not uh, where there's not a lot at stake when it comes okay. to really important things. So you have to watch that, but there is a way to uh, sometimes address the issue that you can't help but address because it's right there in front of you without addressing everything. 
I know that this sometimes could be like so situationally specific, but is there a time like, I don't know, I guess I'm just trying to think of like, how do you discern between like, you know what, it is actually better to wait a week or it's better to wait a month versus addressing this like right now? How do you how do you discern between those? Well, again, it it comes back to knowing um to knowing yourself to the degree that you know which which direction you're usually tempted to sin. Mm-hmm. And so you account for it. Um, and so if you're somebody who's sort of naturally timid and cowardly, um, the what you should ask yourself is, is this my timidity and mm-hmm. cowardice speaking? It's not always. But you ask yourself that to find out. And if you're a quarrelsome, confrontational person, you need to ask yourself, is this my quarrelsomeness and my, uh, as, the, as the Bible puts it, craving for controversy? Is, is that what's going on here? And check yourself from that end. It's not always. But you need to ask yourself that question as you, as you go into it. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, as we were talking, one of the stories that came to mind that you share in the book that I would love for you to uh, share is you talk about, uh, as as it pertains to speaking up, is you talk about Fred Rogers as well, Mr. Rogers, yeah. and whenever he decided to speak up versus not speaking up, would you mind sharing that story? Well, it's in it's in one of the last interviews with uh, the children's broadcaster, television uh, pioneer, uh, Mr. Rogers. Um, and someone asked him if he minded the parodies uh, that would often happen that were making fun of uh, Mr. Rogers. And he said no. And he never said anything about any of them except for one. And that was on some local television sh- uh, station. There was this comedy show where a guy would come out dressed like Mr. Rogers and in a Mr. Rogers persona and would say, hey, kids. Here's how you can make a homemade blowtorch. Just take your mom's hairspray and your dad's cigarette lighter, and you can have a blowtorch. He did become angered by that because he said, "It's, it's not just that it's it's not that it's making fun of him. It's that it was potentially at least creating something dangerous using the credibility that had been built." Uh, by Mr. Rogers. And so that's that's one of the reasons why, um, and I think the New Testament, uh, well, Old and New Testaments bear this out, that uh, the internal dangers to the church are far worse than whatever the external dangers are. If the church loses its witness, it loses everything. Um, and so that's uh, the the, the uh, golden calves at uh, Bethel uh, are worse than the idolatries of the nations, and so you you have to um, you have to have a set of priorities often in terms of what what cannot go without losing, as as Jesus puts it, the lampstand, um, and, and I think that applies even in our lives in other ways, but certainly in terms of the church. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to go back to what you had mentioned. You mentioned that you love um, paying attention and, and discerning like different patterns that you see. And I, I always love just hearing about like things like that. And I'd just be curious whether it's, you know, 
human nature and institution or church or anything like that. I'd be curious to hear about at least uh, one of those patterns that you just, you know, either see over and over again, or it's like one of the, the easy ones for you to recognize. Um, well, I think I think one of the things that you see often is that the, it's not that there's a repetition of something as much as there's a cycle of um, reaction and counter reaction. So one of the things that I found is that often if unless somebody really pays attention and examines it, um, you can easily be reacting to the last bad thing by saying, what's the opposite of that? And let me go to it. And, and usually what turns out to be the case is it's not opposite. It's, it's just another form of what it is that you're escaping. So for instance, if somebody uh, comes to me and says, you know, we shouldn't be talking about obedience and going through the imperatives of scripture. Let's, let's just talk about who we are in Christ usually that's somebody who's coming out of a really legalistic uh, sort of system. They rightly see what's wrong there, but they try to, to come at it from the other side. And if I see somebody who says, what are the rules about um, Halloween celebration for Christians? What are the rules? Tell me, what what's the Bible translation I need to use? That's usually somebody who's coming out of a really chaotic uh, sort of a background and is trying to get order. And I think that happens where when you see something that's bad, you often say, I've got to get as far to the other side of that as possible. When in reality, where you're wanting to get is, is, is in a different place in, in a way of uh, obedience there. And I, I see that happen just all the time. And sometimes you'll have institutions that just sort of go back and forth from, from one reaction to one counter reaction. Um, and and I, th I see that happen just a lot. Yeah. Are there any other patterns that just stand out to you that you wish that either, you know, we paid more attention to? Well, I think that we... Uh, we overemphasize uh, how much we're changed by abstract argument. Mm. Um, and we aren't uh, aware of what Jesus sees and, and teaches, which is a, a more holistic way of being. And that's the way that we're, we're actually changed. So the, the parable of the prodigal son is not just Jesus trying to teach you uh, forgiveness. I mean, it is in there, but the it's it's about teaching you forgiveness from the inside of the story, um, and that's a very very different thing. Um, and so I see that happening a lot, as well as, and this is kind of a kind of goes along with that. I think there's a sense in which especially in a social media age, that we don't think about how people actually change hmm. and are persuaded. For, for one thing, because we, we don't even try to persuade each other. Instead, we try to divide up, okay, who are the good people and who are the bad people? 
and the bad people are completely irredeemable. Uh, and we're not even trying to persuade them. We're just speaking to our own uh, side. But also because we, if you think about in your own life, uh, when are the times that you've changed your mind about something? It's almost never because you lost an argument. And in 20 minutes of arguing, you say, you're right, I'm wrong, I surrender. Instead, what usually happens is you're arguing your point or withdrawing, whichever is your temperamental way to go. And, and sometimes that will become even more intense the closer you start circling to some understanding of, oh, I think this person might be uh, might be right. And then you mull it. Uh, and it and it works uh, in you. And sometimes that takes a very, very long time before you realize, I think I've I've uh, changed my mind. We when we don't understand that and we expect that other people are going to change their minds with some sort of instant uh, surrender, uh, then we we just fall into that. My enemies are my permanent enemies, and my allies are my permanent allies, and that is rarely the case. Hmm. Yeah, talk to me about uh, whenever you're whenever you're trying to persuade somebody. Talk to me about well, one or two things that help you in that when trying to you know maybe change someone's mind or get them to think differently. Well, usually what I try to do uh, where I can is to come in and find some area of um, of agreement on a point and build out from there. Mm-hmm. And so um, to, to say, uh, for instance, I, I was um, having a, a conversation with a very secular, uh, very uh, progressive uh, friend who disagrees with me on abortion. And I'm a I'm pro-life uh, mm-hmm. on abortion. This person disagrees with me on that. Um, but we've worked together on um, issues related to refugees and migrant children and, and so forth. And he was saying, you know, I just don't understand why uh, why people are wanting to restrict uh, people's freedom. And I said, okay, well – it's okay for us to have this disagreement, but understand where people – you're only going to be effective even if you understand what people actually think. I said, and so translate this in your mind. Uh, translate unborn children with migrant children at the border, uh, and you're going to see that you know they, we may be wrong. You know, that that's a separate issue. We'll come to that next. But but uh, but that's where the motivation is. Uh, and so if you're going to if you're going to get at it, you have to get at it from there. So try to find and I often will work uh, the other way, too. I'll find somebody who is uh, pro-life uh, on abortion, but uh, who has a a really inhumane view of of other human beings created in the image of God. I want to start with, see, don't you see how you have this concern for human vulnerability? And it's not just about power or wantedness. Well, that also applies to 
uh, every other human beings are trying to find a, a way to translate where there actually is already uh, agreement. And I've seen that happen a lot, um, even in terms of, I mean, another thing that I think is really important and is bound up with that is to be able to understand whatever viewpoint one's arguing against as much as possible from the inside. So you're not caricaturing uh, those viewpoints. I mean, so I, I will often be in settings where people are saying things, um, you know, for instance, about evangelical Christians. Um, there are, there's a lot to critique about American evangelical Christianity. I do that in the book, but they'll have critiques of evangelical Christianity that just aren't true. They're, they're caricatures. Um, And I, I kind of see from that ways that we all can do that. Mm -hmm. If we don't sort of have an imaginative connection to at least what's the story that the other viewpoint is saying, there's, there's, there are very few people who see themselves as supervillains in a lair mm-hmm. plotting to do something. Everybody sees themselves as doing something um, of meaning and on the side of the uh, on the side of the good, even people who are illegitimately, I think, uh, thinking, well, we have to use evil to get there. That they're doing that. So you have to sort of understand what story they're telling themselves before you can try to tell a different one. Hmm. You know, as we were talking about earlier um, about your um, about the person that you were wanted to help uh, and, you know, your your mentor, your friend advised uh, to go the financial route. It made me think of another point that you talk about in the book and that sometimes it's better to address uh, small problems in, in smaller ways as opposed to, you know, the, the full scale large overhaul and stuff like that um talk, talk to me about why that is the case that sometimes it's better to start small than to start large well i i uh, wendell berry said this um many years ago to a group of um environmental activists who were as concerned as he was uh for uh, for or is for the natural world and he said you know one of the big problems we have is thinking that the solutions have to be at the same scale as the problem. And that's rarely uh, how things change. I think he's exactly right. Um, Instead of saying, here is this huge problem in front of us, and before we can address it, we have to come up with a game plan that's just as huge as it. Um, you, you, You don't end up doing anything. You end up having a sense of resignation. But when you have small groups of people who uh, start coming together and start with a sense of, we don't know what to do, we're baffled, but we see something here that's not the way it should be. I mean, that's not defeat. That's the beginning of, uh, of triumph. And when you have those small scale sorts of, and so that's why I will often say to people who are, um, who are lamenting the state of the American church, for instance, to say, okay, you can't do a lot about the American church right now. 
and and everybody wants to say, okay, well, what's the big uh, church planning campaign or curricular uh, Bible study or all those things are important, but you can't do that. But what you can pay attention to is what's going on with you. And you can find uh, groups of people to start modeling and seeing a different way. And what happens is over time, when that's not just talked about, but demonstrated, other people start to see it and, and it's made credible. And so uh, often, uh, especially with sort of young Christians who are really distressed by, um, by what's going on in the church, I'll always say, don't be like that. And I'll say, well, I'm not. Okay, good. Find other people who aren't like that and uh, build something. Uh, and you, you don't need to have a blueprint as to how to build it at first. So, I mean, to come back to, to, come back to Barry, I mean, he, he said at one point, the mind that is not baffled is not employed. Uh, that there has to be the, the first step to any really meaningful thing is to say, we don't know what to do. Well, that's especially true uh, for followers of, of Jesus who, who understand that you get to the point where you realize my own dependence on myself or on technique isn't going to get to the root of this. And there's a, a beginning point that is, Lord, have mercy. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a good start. Yeah. Well, I got one other question I want to ask you. But before that, I always love just giving people the opportunity uh, just to talk about anything. I know that we haven't talked about, or there's, let me back up and say, there's so many other things that we could talk about in the book. Is there anything else just top of mind that you want to make sure that we cover? Well, I just would would want to make sure that you mentioned disillusionment, mm-hmm. um, and I, I I talk about uh, in the book that disillusionment is not uh, necessarily a loss of faith that uh, or or even a loss of hope that mm-hmm. the right kind of disillusionment can literally break illusions, but uh, but it but it doesn't necessarily yield itself to cynicism. So know the difference between disillusionment and cynicism and embrace the former, but beware of the latter. And the last thing I I would love to ask you about is one of the points that you make is you talk about one of the moves that we need to do is move from prioritizing long-term integrity over short-term or short-term success. Would you mind just elaborating that or elaborating on that as we close our conversation? Well, I think there are, there are a lot of people who think, well, uh, what we have to do is to achieve our goals uh, right now, even if it means we sacrifice our credibility in the long run. Um, and and uh, I just don't think that's the biblical model. And mm-hmm. so don't give up, uh, for instance, the... Uh, the, the following of, of Jesus. I mean, one of, one of the things that I think has happened, I talk about in the book, is that for a lot of evangelical Christians, Jesus is the villain in the story. They, they wouldn't articulate it that way. 
but the very things that they believe are the problem, weakness, vulnerability, um, and, and so forth, uh, are uh, get real. That that that's yeah. not the way that this uh, yeah. works. Uh, or they will say things like, "Well, that that is fine for a neutral culture, but it doesn't work for a hostile culture." And you step back and say, you really think Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount in Mayberry? This is not a neutral culture. This is in a Roman Empire that's uh, seeking to crucify all dissenters and with a religious establishment um, that is in, in one, at least in one wing of it, trying to prop that up. So I think that uh, I think that the, once you give up integrity for whatever it is that you think that you're uh, achieving you no longer have anything left to give so uh thomas merton the the monk used to say that the guarding of one's conscience actually is an act of loving neighbor because once i give the conscience away and sear it i don't have anything left to give that's so good. Uh, you know, I, I thought of one uh, quick question that I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. Mm-hmm. And uh, you mentioned that you recommend that people uh, read fiction so much. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious to hear what's a what's a recent piece of fiction in the last uh, year or two that you've really enjoyed? Well, I'm right now I'm reading and I can't say whether it's good or bad because I'm yeah. right at the uh, right at the beginning of it, a book called uh, Halcyon, uh, which is an uh, alternative history. Uh, if Al Gore had won the 2000 presidential election. And so it's it's sort of set in uh, a different kind of outcome to September 11th and, you know, all the, mm-hmm. the kind of dominoes uh, falling. So I'm reading that right now. One that really impressed me over yeah. the last year, uh, and it took me a long time to read it, is a book called uh, Everything Sad is Untrue. Oh, and yeah. uh, my friend Beth Moore kept saying you got to read this and i was like, okay i will i mean it it didn't sound like something that would particularly uh, appeal to me and mm-hmm. finally she sent me a text i think it was in all caps obey your mother and read this book because she jokes that she's my mom and yeah. so i i went and read it and it is amazing i mean at every it, it is a the more you get into it the more mm. it stuns you yeah mm. That's great. I'll have to check those out. Well, Dr. Moore, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you and get your book, Losing Our Religion. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Um, well, they can just uh, go to russellmore.com, uh, go to christianitytoday.com, uh, and the book will be wherever they, they typically get books. Some people like uh, audio books, and some people like uh, Kindle books, and some people like the um, the, the real deal. So uh, however, you, however you do it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for a great conversation. And just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So just reflecting back on my conversation with Dr. Moore, I think two things really stand out. One is that whenever you're going through a really hard time, 
that it's important to surround yourself to the best of your ability with people who love you. And I love what he said, who can laugh with you and who can remind you or encourage you in the fact that you're not crazy, that, that, and that they are there for you. And I think back to the people who are able to do that in my life, especially whenever you're going through hard times, the people who have done that for me, it's, it's just been so meaningful to me. And I think and actually one of the, the, one of the thoughts that I've been reflecting on is as important as it is for us to have those types of people. I think it's just as important for us to be those types of people as well, to be the people, be there for people when they're going through a hard time and laugh with them and remind them that they aren't crazy and that you're there for them and that you love them. And I think the other thing, which was a very refreshing surprise, is the importance of fiction in our lives, of getting into the other person's perspective and how fiction enables us to do that. And, you know, I, I love some of his recommendations and I'm going to have to check out those. I think one of my, my most recent favorites, in fact, the, the latest book in this series just came out and it's the Red Rising series, which I absolutely love, which deals with uh, classism and, and just so many other things. And it's said, it's set in outer space and it deals with all these different uh, people who belong to this class of colors and there's reds and there's golds and there's blues and there's browns and golds as well, which is on the top. And I, I absolutely love it. It's it. I've read them. I read the entire series as it was out, you know, several years ago and to, and recently the, the brand new book just came out Lightbringer. And so I'm very excited to be diving into that as well. And, as soon as I finish that, that will probably show up on my stub stack for a recommendation if, if the book is as good as the previous ones have been. And so if you want to keep up with me and some of the other things I'm recommending, some of the other things that I'm learning, please subscribe to my sub stack. And again, it's not just books there. It could be movies and music and quotes and articles and so on and, and so many different things. It's just the things that are engaging my curiosity and are engaging my imagination. And for those of you who learn, I know that sometimes it can be difficult to figure out what do you learn from or even, even figuring out where do you start in this. And this Substack is just meant to be a place to where you could kind of decide for yourself of, hey, these are some things that I recommend and you can go on uh, and figure it out if, if that's, uh, if one of those resources are something that you want to explore on your path to lifelong learning. And yeah, I think that's all that I have for today. So I want to say thank you again to Dr. Moore for being on the podcast today. Thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this episode or for the podcast. And thank you for listening all the way to the end. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. <laughs>